Nehemiah chapter 9. Got your journals out, got your Bibles out, ready to go. We're going to walk through it. Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll start us off thinking this way. Have you ever needed a good mirror? All right. How many of you are like me? And when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, your hair is just all over the place. Like if there weren't, if it weren't for product, you would be like, people would look at you and cringe. Like, is there, am I the only one or is there somebody else out there that you know when you wake up in the morning, you got some work to do, right? I mean, some of us, we shower every morning because we know we get it. And then there's still product needed after that. Cause I have, anybody know what a cow lick is? I don't even know if that's like the proper name, but I have like three cow licks that go in all different directions. And so, yeah, if you don't have those, I'm going to pray some curses on you because you need to go through some suffering in life. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So when I wake up in the morning, I need a good mirror. I need a good, clean mirror. I need some bright light. Now, some of you ladies understand this even better than I do because I don't wear all this stuff that you guys put all over your face to make, to make it look all beautiful and all that. That's just, you know, we just, guys just don't care. It's like, whatever. I, I'll get my hair where it looks presentable. That's the best you're going to get, all right? But I need a mirror. Why do I need a mirror? Because if I didn't have a mirror, I would be reaching up, kind of going, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. But I see a mirror and it goes, oh, wait a second, dude. (laughs) You need to take a shower. And then you got to fix this cowlick over here that's sticking straight out and this one up here. And how many of you have ever needed a mirror after a meeting, an important one perhaps, an interview or something, you get back and you go to brush your teeth that night and you realize you had a piece of pepper right on the front tooth and you're sitting there going, man, I needed a good friend to say, look, dude, you got something in your teeth or you got some lettuce hanging out. Has anybody ever had that happen? Some of you guys are lying. There's more than four of us in this room that have had that happen. We need a good mirror. We need a good mirror for the soul. How often is it that when we look at ourselves spiritually, we can tend to overlook things? Whatever, yeah, we're good. I'm all right, I'm good. But then the Bible, which is a mirror for our soul, we read it and it reads us. And when we read the text, we're convicted because we see ourselves clearly in the text. And for a moment, we catch a glimpse of who God is and a glimpse of who we are, and we recognize the ultimate goodness and greatness of God, and we recognize that we are wicked and evil. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked who can know them. And it's a humbling experience to read in the text and realize just how bad I really am. Today, we get one of the greatest prayers in all of scripture. And in this prayer, we're gonna catch a glimpse, hopefully, of God and who he is and his graciousness and his mercy. And we're gonna catch a glimpse of who we are as well. So if you underline in your Bible or if you have a journal, here are some things I want you to do before we walk through the text. Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 17b. The second part of verse 17, underline it. This is a phrase that shows up frequently throughout scripture that teaches us about God. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That's a key verse in all of Nehemiah because they've been exiled. 
because of their sinfulness. But God is ready to forgive them and bring them back. And that's the whole point of Nehemiah. And then you have to underline verse 33 as well. Verse 33 gives you a summary of this entire chapter. It says, yet you, talking about God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. This chapter is a chapter of confession. Now, when we think about confession, I frequently think about confession as I'm confessing my sins. You watch TV, you're confessing to a crime. But there's also a use of the word confession in that we confess things that we know to be true about God. And the confession of the things we know to be true about God encourages us. It helps us to see clearly what's in reality. We confess that God is good. We confess that we are not. So I want to drive home on that point. So I want you all to say it with me. God is good. Are you ready? God is good. Let's say it again. God is good. One more time. God is good. I don't know if we believe it. Do you believe it? Yes. Let's say it again like we believe it. God is good. In this chapter, God is the primary subject and actor. We're going to walk through it. I want you to look at it, maybe even underline, note that God's the one doing everything, at least everything good. He's the primary actor in this chapter. Give or gave appears 16 times in this chapter. Key words, circle key words, key words that are in there repeatedly tells us something about what the author is trying to communicate. It's that God constantly gives and gives and gives and God gives good gifts to us. He is the giver of good things. Mercies appears six times in verse 17, verse 28, verse 31. And then your great mercies appears in 19, 27, and 31. So God is a giver of good gifts and he is merciful. God is good. What does it say about us? Where's the repetition about us? Well, three times it says in here that we stiffened our necks. Verse 16, 17, and 29. It reminds us of what Romans 3.23 tells us in that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we move to our main idea. Our main idea is that God is good and we are not. If you're here this morning for the first time and you don't recognize that you are not good, I'm sorry to break the news to you. If you have bought into what the culture may tell you that we are all innately good, that is not right. It is not true. If you have ever had children, you understand you never have to teach a baby how to be selfish. That comes naturally. You have to train and teach how to do the good things, the right things. Our inclination is always to do the bad things, to do the evil things. We are not good in and of ourselves. We have an inclination to sin. It's God that is good, not us. So what does the word good mean? Well, actually, I think God defines good. Not that good defines God. But here's how we define the word good. As a noun, something conforming to the moral order of the universe, which was set by God. Praiseworthy character or goodness demonstrated by God. Possessing or displaying moral virtue, virtuous, right, commendable, admirable, 
Also means enjoyable, giving pleasure, satisfying. So what we see in this chapter is we see that God is the promise-keeping God of a promise-breaking people. It reminds us of 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faith, faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his character. From his very nature flows consistent goodness, righteousness, mercy. He desires our best interest. So today, I wanna walk through this chapter and I've got 10 truths for you about the goodness of God. I'm gonna show them to you and we'll walk through it. Here they are. God discloses his uniqueness, verses five and six. God created the heavens and the earth, verse six. God keeps his promises, seven and eight. God saves his people, nine through 11. God cares for his people, 12 through 15. God is good and we are not, 16 through 18. God sustains his people, 19 through 21. God gives generously, 22 through 25. God models mercy and patience, 26 through 31. And God reveals his righteousness in 32 through 37. We look first at verses five and six. The second half of verse five, God discloses his uniqueness. They say, stand and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. God is the eternal one, we are not. We are a temporal flash in the pan. We automatically spring up and then we go away. We are like the grass, we are like the flowers, we are like a vapor of smoke, we are like a mist, we are like the dew on the morning grass, we are gone. But God stands forever, everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all. You are the Lord, you alone. The Bible tells us, God reveals to us that he is God. The Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before him. You shall have no graven images. The Shema Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is but one God. There are not many gods throughout this earth. There are not a multitude of different ways to get to heaven. There is one true God who has revealed himself to us. There is one way to be saved through the mediator, Jesus Christ. All other ways are false, deceptive ways by the devil sought to lead us astray. There is but one truth. That truth is that God is one. God created the heavens and the earth. Look what it says in verse six. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heavens worship you. The Apostles' Creed begins with this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Our worldview begins with this. God is the creator of all things. In six literal days, God created all that we see and all that we know. And on the seventh, he rested. And if you are pressing into a worldview that begins with an evolutionary theme, you're gonna end up questioning, who am I? What is my value and worth? Why am I on this earth? How does it all fit together? You begin with a God of creation, a God that created us and he created us all in his image, male and female. And you have a biblical worldview that starts with a purpose. It starts with 
equality. It starts with value and dignity. And you understand that once we are saved, we are in Christ and that our value, our identity, our worth comes from being created in the image of God and being in Christ and that we know what our purpose is on this earth. With an evolutionary worldview, figure it out. Good luck. You have no purpose. You have no meaning. But here we see the confession of a biblical worldview. God created And in every class and in every discipline and in everything that you are studying, that biblical worldview should just resonate throughout because it changes the way you view or see everything. Look at verses seven and eight. God keeps his promises. You are the Lord, the God. Notice who's doing the acting. The God who chose Abram and then you brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham, the only time that that's referenced outside of Genesis here, you found his heart faithful before you. You made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. We have a God that keeps his promises. We have a God that took initiative with Abram. We have a God that made promises to Abraham. We have a God that kept his promises. And then when they were taken away, God shows here in this book that he still keeps his promises by bringing them back, by building a wall, by restoring the temple, by putting the people back into the land. We look into the New Testament, we see in Galatians 3.16 that Paul is clear about the ultimate fulfillment of this promise comes through the singular offspring being Jesus who is to be a blessing to all people. Aren't you glad that God keeps his promises? He has promised to forgive us. He has promised to adopt us. He has promised to justify us. He has promised to reconcile us to our creator. He has promised to return for us. He has promised to make all things new. You need a God that keeps his promises. I need a God that keeps his promises. That's where my faith, that's where my hope lies is that we have a promise keeping God. And the Old Testament shows us the glimpse that God kept his promises. Even when everything else seems to be falling apart. You can take heart in the fact that God keeps his promises. Look at verses 9 through 11. God saves his people. But don't miss this as I'm reading 9 through 11, of how the Old Testament interprets the Old Testament. Did these things really happen? Do the details matter? He called Abram. He changed his name to Abraham. Look at what we see here. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea in the swamp. On wet mud. Seaweed. What does it say? It says on dry land. And then you cast the pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. God saves his people. You'll remember back to Exodus chapter eight, verse 19, where the magician said after the plague of gnats came, this is the finger of God. He has the power to save 
Old Testament slaves in Egypt, and he has the power to save us enslaved to our own sin. God is good. They cried at the Red Sea. You remember what they cried? Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And Moses responds to them of little faith. Maybe you're here this morning of little faith. Moses responds to them and he says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord said, why do you cry to me? Go forward that these people may see that they will cross on dry ground. God is good. Through the midst of the sea, they went on dry land, and then the Lord took the mightiest army on the face of the earth, and it says he chunked it as a rock into deep waters. Have you ever thrown a rock into deep waters? Not on the ice like Cedar Lake. I see those rocks out there sometimes. We like the noise it makes. I get it. But into deep waters, you chunk that rock into deep waters, and all of a sudden it's gone. Where'd it go? To the bottom. It's a rock. Can you see it? No, where's this mighty power? It has none. All it does is sink. And that's what happened to the mightiest army on the face of the planet when it came up against a good, powerful, righteous, holy God. Can I say to you this morning, it doesn't matter where you are, God still saves. It doesn't matter how far you have drifted away from God. It doesn't matter if you have rejected God. It doesn't matter if you have been mad at God. It doesn't matter what you have done. God is still in the saving business. And there is nothing that you can do that can prevent God's power from being able to save you. If you think you have sinned so bad, God can't save you. You think too much of your sin. You think too much of your ability. And you think far too little of the gracious, holy, righteous, merciful God. God saves his people. Look at verses 12 through 15. God cares for his people. Look at what it says. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. He didn't leave them alone. He didn't leave them wondering. By a pillar of fire into the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down. God came down to reveal himself to us. Why should God reveal himself to us? Those who have rebelled against him, those who he created, put in a garden, and in the garden he said, you can do anything you want but one thing, and what do we do? We do the one thing. We create cosmic rebellion against the God who has given us good gifts, and we do it over and over and over again, even in our own hearts. He doesn't leave us alone. He comes down to us. He communicates to us. The great, awesome, mighty God humbles himself to come to us and to say to us, here, and on Mount Sinai, he gives them good gifts. He spoke with them from heaven. And look at what it says. He gave them right rules. Now, the devil, the devil gives you a lie. The devil gives you a lie that says there are rules that says God is a cosmic killjoy. All God wants to do is take away your fun. And so he puts all these rules in life, all these rules that are bad for us. That's the devil's lie. Because what the Bible tells us is that God gives us good rules that are for his glory and for our joy. And that when we abide by those rules, that our life is going to be better. And here he comes down and it says he gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. Look at verse 14. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. God didn't need a Sabbath. We needed the Sabbath. 
God didn't need to rest. God didn't need six days to create the earth and everything in it. He could have snapped his proverbial fingers. He could have spoken one word. God did this for us. It's a good gift to us. And he commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. So when you hear somebody say, oh, Moses didn't write all this. Well, God said Moses wrote it. Jesus said Moses wrote it. So whatever professor tells you Moses didn't, you ignore the professor and you listen to Jesus because Jesus is always right. You gave them bread. Oh, wait a second here. There's a prayer in the New Testament, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven even as it is on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. He already has. In the Old Testament, he has shown us that he provided bread every single day from heaven for their hunger and he brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in and possess the land that you have given them. God cares for his people with good laws, good truths, right? Statutes. Oh, look at verses 16 through 18. This is where it gets uncomfortable for me. This is where it gets uncomfortable for us. God is good, but we are not. So what happens? Verse 16, but all these things. He gives us bread. He gives us water. He's provided all these. There's a cloud. There's a pillar of fire. What do we do? But they... And our fathers, there's a confession here of sin. They acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck, the first of the three mentions of stiffen their neck. So what does stiffen your neck mean? Stiffen your neck is talking about an animal that when you're going to put something on it that would be useful in this day and time, that it stiffens its neck, it bows up. And so for us, for the, the nearest analogy that I have to where this might happen is that I'm trying to get my dog to go do what my dog wants to do. And I have a dog that I really love, but this dog is crazy. This dog, I, we call her Psycho Duchess because she has psycho moments and there are times. She's a smart dog, but this, this dog is every bit as stubborn as I am. And if she's on the couch and I tell her it's time to go outside and she doesn't want to go outside, she will actually, from the couch, look at me with this kind of look like. So then me being the master of the house or whatever you want to call it, right? I'm like, Duchess, come on. And then she puts her little head back down, looking all cute. I'm not going. And then you go over to say, all right, look, dog. I weigh like three times as much as you do. I can grab you and throw you out that door. <laughs> because, see, I'm not God. I don't always give good gifts with gracious mercy and all this type stuff. <laughs> And I look at this dog in utter rebellion and say, that's it. You've had it. You're going out that door. I actually did this this weekend. We have guests in town. Hey, I grabbed the dog by the back of the neck. Come on. You're going to get the message that you're not going to do what you want to do. You're going to do what I've told you you're supposed to do. Psycho Duchess. We're even going to have a new painting in the house. It's a painting. Of, it's kind of like Duchess. It looks like Duchess, but it's all these crazy colors. I think it's perfect because it looks like her and it's beautiful, but then it's crazy all at the same time. Psycho Duchess. That's her. All right. So if you come to the house, be careful around Psycho Duchess. Stiff-necked. Come on, let's go. No. How often do we in our lives, God says do something, God says do this, how often do we proverbially, figuratively? No. I know better. I'm smarter. I've got this thing all figured out. God, I don't want to listen to your laws. God, I don't want to trust your laws. God, I don't want to do what you say do. And we are the stiff 
stiff-necked people. So were they. See yourself in the text. Look at the mirror carefully. And they did not obey your commands. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders. You did all these great things for us, but oh, let's forget them. Let's forget all the miracles. Let's forget the Red Sea. Let's forget the bread and the water, even though I may need it tomorrow. And we do it in our own lives too. All the great, good gifts that God has given us, not mindful of them, that you performed all of them. But again here, what does it say? They stiffened their necks. Next time you disobey God, get in your mind that you are stiffening your neck in disobedience and rebellion against your creator. They even appointed a leader to return them to the slavery of Egypt. And in my mind, I read this and I go, are you dumb? Are you crazy? You're in slavery. All of these miracles happen. You come out, you go through the Red Sea, you get bread and you get water. You really want to go back to that? And then I look in the mirror. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, enslaved to where I had no option to not sin. And God called me out and he made me alive. And I ran out of that tomb when he did that. And all of a sudden God has breathed life into me and I have been saved and I have been forgiven and I have his spirit living within me and I have been declared righteous and Christ's righteousness has been put on me so that God sees that. And then in my daily life, how often is it I look at these trivial sins that I was once enslaved to And I say, oh, I want to go back to that. I look in my own mirror and I say, how stupid am I that the trivial sins of this world still entice my heart? Stiff-necked. Appoint a leader to go back to slavery. Here's our saving grace. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. He did not forsake them. This passage occurs in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You'll see it again in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9, in Psalms 86, verse 15, 103, verse 8, 145, verse 8, in Joel 2, 13, and Jonah 4, 2. You want a summary of who God is in the Old Testament? This is where we're so wrong. So many people want to paint the God of the Old Testament as the cosmic killjoy or as the evil God. And here over and over and over again, what we're told about God of the Old Testament is that you're ready to forgive. You are gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. It's not God that's evil in the Old Testament. It's us. We are the evil ones rebelling in the Old Testament. God is the one ready to forgive. So if anybody ever presents this view that the God in the Old Testament is a God of hate and the God of the New Testament is a God of love, that is a false reading of the Bible. God is good. Hear what it says in verse 18. Even they made for themselves a golden calf. And then they said, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They committed great blasphemy. We do the same thing. We gotta keep moving. God sustains his people. Look at verses 19 and 21. In your great mercies, praise the Lord for his great mercy. You didn't forsake them. They didn't do this stupid stuff and you said, all right, you're done. You're you're gonna cease to exist. There was still a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way. It didn't depart from them. Still the pillar of fire by night to light the way for them. It didn't depart from them. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold from them manna from their mouths or give them water for their thirst. 
Here's what it says in verse 21. For you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. The 23rd Psalm, same language used here. For you, my shepherd, I shall not want. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. God gives generously. Look at what it says in verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms. These rebellious people? Yeah. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Hezbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children. You gave them good gifts, not just physical gifts, but you gave them a legacy of children as the stars in heaven fulfilling the promise because he's a God that keeps his promises. You brought them into a land that you had told their fathers that you would to enter and possess. So the descendants went into the land and you subdued. You conquered the people. You subdued the inhabitants of the land and you gave them into their hand. Well, surely after all this, we're going to obey God, right? You gave them the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities. Not just cities, fortified cities. A rich land and took possessions of houses full of good things. Cisterns. Already all the work done, ready to be used. Vineyards, olive orchards, fine things, nice things, good gifts, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and they were filled and they became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. God gives generously. What do we do in response? Continues on in verse 26. For God models his mercy and his patience. Because nevertheless, we, they, look at the mirror here, were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back. They paid it no attention. So then your prophets came to them and spoke the truth. So they killed them. The ones who had warned them in order that they might turn back to God, and then they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, God in his goodness gave them into the hand of their enemies to make them suffer so they would realize what they're doing. And in their time of suffering, they cried out to you and God didn't ignore them. God heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the land of their enemies. But after they had rested for a little bit, just like us, after everything went well for a little bit, they again did evil before you. And then you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies. This is the cycle. So they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order that they should turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. Again, the word presumptuous. They did not obey your commands, but they sinned against your rule. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Can you say it with me? God is good. Let's say it again. God is good. God reveals his righteousness. Verse 32, it shines. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love, 
Let not all the hardship seem to you as a little thing that has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests. This is the actual only petition in this prayer. Don't let this seem like a little thing. Our prophets, our fathers, and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyrians to this day. Verse 33, here you go, here it is. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. God is good and we are not. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers, they have not kept your law or paid attention to your commands or your warnings that you gave them, even in our own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land you set before them, they didn't serve you. Or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we're slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit, its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Do we really believe that God is good? We often say things in life like, it's not fair. Can I submit to you we don't want what's fair? Because if we get what's fair, God makes an end to all of us, rebels against the ultimate king of the universe. He cast us as a rock into deep waters. He gave us a garden. We messed it up. He gave each of us life. We all rebel against him. Satan plants the lies that he's the divine killjoy when in fact we are the ones that are wicked and evil and utterly deceived. What's the problem with this world? I am. And so are you. Here's what we learn about mankind. We're presumptuous, verse 16. Stiffened our necks, 16. Disobeyed, verse 16. Not mindful of God's wonders, verse 17. Refused to obey, verse 17. Appointed false leaders. Desired to return to the slavery of sin. Made idols like a golden calf. Committed blasphemy. Continued disobedience and rebellion. Verse 26. Hid the law of God. Verse 26. Killed the prophets of God. Committed great blasphemy and lies about God again. Grew lazy in rest. Committed evil again. Continued to presume upon the grace of God and forgiveness of God. Did not obey the commands of God. Sinned against the rules of God. Turned a stubborn shoulder. Stiffened our necks again. Would not listen. Acted wickedly did not keep the law, paid no attention to God's commands or warnings and did not serve God and rebelled again and again. And before we finish the book of Nehemiah, we're gonna see another rebellion. What does that say about me? I'm not good. What does this chapter tell us about God? God has given himself to the work of creating, choosing, encouraging, hearing, delivering, guiding, meeting, teaching, protecting, feeding, forgiving, loving, accompanying, clothing, empowering, sustaining, multiplying, prospering, correcting, and rescuing. Oh, if there's anything good, it's God. He defines the very word. Don't believe the lies of the evil one. All right. So here we go with some concluding thoughts. Number one, do you genuinely believe that God is good? First Chronicles 16, 34, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercies endure forever. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Matthew 7, 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. God is good.
Don't believe the lies of the evil one when the evil one tries to tell you that the good one is not good. Do you recognize my inclination, your inclination to stiffen our necks in rebellion against God? All right, you, you, you got your point home. God is good and I'm not. So then the logical question from that flows, how can we remind ourselves constantly that God is good and we are not? We need a mirror. No Bible, no breakfast. Because every day I need a mirror where I can look at the condition of my soul and I can realize that my soul is in far worse shape than my hair ever thought about being. That my soul has calyx and is unwieldy and does not listen and rebels and is prideful and is arrogant and stiffens its neck all day long. And so I need God's mercy and that he came down and revealed his word and he gave us his good spirit and he gives us the local church and brothers and sisters to help me walk through this life recognizing that but by the grace of God, I am what's depicted in this chapter of utter rebellion against the God who is good. Look in the mirror every morning to fix your hair and to read the Bible. We will all appreciate it more. God is good and we are not. God, we know that you are the only one that is good. Lord, we know that we are not. So help us, Lord, to put habits of grace in our lives that will help us to recognize who we are, resist those temptations, walk together bearing one another's burdens, to live a life that glorifies you, for you are the only one that is good. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you are dismissed.